Hey everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm your host, Brandon David. Thank you so much for joining us. There are a lot of podcasts you could be listening to, a lot of weed podcasts you could be listening to, and you're here with me. I appreciate that, guys. Excited for today's episode, particularly cool one for me, Helene of the newly launched and funded Journey One Ventures. Helene and I go back a long ways. She came to me four, five, six years ago, something like that, and said, I want to be a cannabis VC. How do I do that? And I said, well, I'm still trying to figure out how to do that. <laughs> but no, uh, she asked a lot of great questions. She's really grinded it out, gotten a lot of great experience, and so happy for her uh, to launch this uh, this venture of her own. Warms my heart when people grow up listening uh, to the podcast, never gets old. Um, Helena and I talk about a lot of great topics. Her fund is specifically targeted towards cannabis tech. Uh, she comes from San Francisco and that background, so lots of great conversation there. Uh, it's a great conversation, kind of how to, how to build your own path. There is no direct path to VC or entrepreneurship, and Helene is a great example of just that. You're going to love it, guys. I learned a ton. You're going to learn a ton. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Hey, if you listen to the podcast all the time, you get a lot of value out of it. You like listening to it. Do us a favor, write a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you listen to it. Please do that. It really helps us guys. Helene, my old friend, how are you? Welcome to the show. It is such a pleasure to be with you because every time someone asks me, you know, who has been your mentor in cannabis, I always say podcasts and investing in cannabis with Brandon David was one of the first ones. And um, I say that because I learned a lot and uh, want you to know that Podcast info is so much more impactful than reading an article. You mm -hmm. get to really understand how someone thinks, what their strategy is, what their personality is like. And it's always cued me up for better conversations once I talk to those people. So, well, thank to be you on so here. much. Um, that's so nice. And honestly, like originally, that's why I did this show because I felt like I'm learning all this great stuff about weed investing. And there's probably other people that want to know. I mean, I think the first, literally the first 50 episodes, like nobody listened to, like 12 people listened to. <laughs> so maybe you are one of them. So thanks. <laughs> uh, what, are you, what episode are you at now? I think you're like 206 or something. I don't know. That's a nice number. Yeah, that's a good number. It's I'll two, take that. Which is 200 a couple of weeks ago, I guess, three weeks ago. Anyway, uh, you have had quite the glow up in the industry, I would say. Um, when we met, you were like, how do I get into VC? How do I do this? I want to do this. I like weed a lot. And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about that. But the truth is, and we talked about this a little bit before the show, I'm not sure there's an actual real path to get to be a venture capitalist. And we're going to talk a little bit about your path, because I think there's a lot of people that have that question. And I did at one time, too. Like, how do I become a venture capitalist? That's like a daunting, huge thing. Didn't I have to like go to Stanford and my parents have to be billionaires? You know, and the answer is no, but we're going to get there. Let's start first. Uh, you started Journey One Ventures 
and you're about to do a big press release, or maybe you did it a couple of days ago. Tell us about Journey One um, and congratulations for getting there. That's super exciting. Yeah, thank you. We can go into the, the history behind it. But uh, Journey One Ventures, we're an early stage focused cannabis fund. I've been in the market since you know mid-2017 was when I was going to events in LA, but I was working in tech. Um, I was working enterprise tech for a voice analytics company and uh, felt that it was time to not be a cog in a wheel and to learn how to write checks. And this was all around the Me Too movement and, you know, the limited numbers going to uh, VC dollars going to women founders. And so I decided that I wanted to be a VC. When you work at early stage startups, it's something that you kind of fantasize around Mm -hmm. without really knowing much about. And now that I do, um, it's a lot more real because it's not a glorious, fabulous world per se. It's not why I do this work. It's more fulfilling than anything else. But um, I wanted to bring the talent that I had and start there, which is I've been an early stage operator throughout my 20s. Uh, working in emerging industries. So, uh, you know, started off at Puma Reebok Corporate, worked in the electric bike industry overseas and enterprise tech. And when I was looking at, hmm, what would I do if I did VC? Um, I chose cannabis opportunistically, but also timely because 2018 was the evolution of the recreational market, you know, the adult use market in California. So um, that has always been a thesis, right? Like, let's not try to do something that is out of my scope. Let's try to make it easier and then grow from there. So Journey One, we focus on pre-seed to Series A investments, heavily focused on seed. Um, We have five portfolio companies uh, right now and did a soft launch late last year. So um, I'm excited to chat more about those type of companies, but it it spans from tech-enabled distribution to... uh, regulatory compliance to biotech and uh, CPG and beverage. Okay. And uh, is there a, that's a pretty big range. Is there a constant in those? Is there a certain thing that you're looking for? Yeah. So, you know, when you're doing early stage, it always comes back to what are the things that can be constant at an early stage company? And that's founder and team, you know, product, uh, product can always change every six months and have a pivot. Uh, plan and strategy adopts to market conditions, i.e. California right now, you know, maybe it's not the best time to launch a brand <laughs> specifically in California. And so uh, really anchoring uh, senior level executives who come from the cannabis industry, maybe it's their second or third company that they've worked at, or they come from tangential industries um, and come into the cannabis market building products that really intersect with their expertise. So if they're building a compliance and you know fintech related product, um, you know maybe a, a team from PayPal would be awesome. So that that's a, one of our anchors. And then you know we can technically invest across the industry, but I really focus on where are the biggest pain points in the market. Let's start there, uh, and I evaluate a few theses per year. Which the first what? one. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, the first one being core services. So um, some people call it like ancillary, you know, cannabis companies. I, I look at it as any type of 
company that is customized for cannabis customers that is um, imperative for cannabis customers to scale. For example, you know, ERP systems, uh, lending, banking, uh, regulatory compliance. The second uh, category is e-commerce. So there's a whole, you know, ecosystem of what is cannabis e-commerce. Right now it's all primarily retail e-com. Like how do we enable, how do we get customers into shops whether we're marketing to them offline or online. Um, And we're seeing the evolution of direct-to-consumer platforms in cannabis. So with e-com, there comes a world of advertising technology, marketing compliance technology, payments, uh, because we can't use existing systems like, you know, Amex. uh, We can't use Google, Facebook ads. So it it creates a... Yeah, yeah, I I think it creates a whole ecosystem of um, venture-backable and scalable companies that are customized for cannabis uh, that can use cannabis as a go-to-market and then maybe transition into other highly regulated industries such as, you know, alcohol, what have you. Um, And then the third category, which we'll have um, some exposure to, but not a ton, just given that it might be, you know, it might be early on timing is medicinal grade cannabis, farmer grade cannabis. So we did a biotech investment into Celebri, uh, which develops lab created minor cannabinoids at scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now they're really looking at nutraceuticals and beauty and wellness. But when it comes to medicinal grade consumption, you know, it's hard to get those rich minor cannabinoids from a seed. So I'm looking at, you know, cannabinoid tech. Very cool. Call it that. I think Jean Sullivan told me about that company. She in that? Is- yeah. Every major cannabis fund is, is uh, in Celebri. And um, so I think they have really strong backing on that side. But, you know, cannabis growth capital only goes so far. But, um, yeah, so that's the kind of thesis around Journey One. And, you know, the focus is what are the venture scalable sectors of cannabis? So Celebri, any others that we would know about? Yeah, so Navis, um, tech-enabled distribution company, started off as distribution in California, um, and now they're scaling into a B2B wholesale marketplace, mm-hmm. given that they their main stakeholders on the platform are really brands and retailers. And they so like LeafLink, LeafTrade? Yeah, they're going after those guys. Um, and yeah, and then, uh, complied, which is an API compliance platform, um, that is, uh, right now focused on helping other tech platforms scale state to state by being the one central point of connection to biotrack and metric. Um, but they're also looking at the financial services industry because the team came from PayPal. And so they really know, uh, financial and banking compliance. So ahead of safe banking. And I think as the industry starts to mature and get gets bigger, you know, last couple of years, we've been increasing number of uh, debt options and lending options and uh, more legitimate banks will start to come into the space, but they're not going to want to do it without having some base foundation on compliance because they have a lot to lose. So I about this. How does that overlap with like a simplifier? 
Um, you know, I feel like Simplify is really focused on query and keeping up to date with, uh, I guess, like the, the latest state by state compliance yeah, like metrics. Stuff, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah I, I would say they're more of kind of like the back end tech layer. So are you familiar with Twilio and yeah. Stripe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So just how, you know, Twilio is the API omni communications layer for companies like Airbnb and Uber to run omni-channel communications without having to build individual tools for SMS, mm -hmm. chat, and email. They just build on top of Twilio as an yeah, like API for developer a, platform. I invested very early in public Twilio, which turned out really well. But um, basically- Good for you. Yeah. Basically, when you get a text from Uber, that's from Twilio. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it's, 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 there's a lot going in the background that requires for you not to just build that tool, but to maintain that tool. So, you know, going into KYC, AML compliance, um, what have you, it's a really interesting uh, cool. opportunity for compliance. And then you said the beverage space, what'd you do in the beverage space? I'm a, I'm a wonder believer. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. I worked with Ken um, a couple of years ago as a consultant on helping them uh, advise on their multi-state expansion strategy out of California. And then before that, I did some deal diligence on, um, you know, the beverage tech landscape, like Source and Bertosa. So I got really big on beverage early on. And I love the category. Um, Why? Well, I, you know, it's, it's, it's anecdotal data from my friends and myself being a 32 year old and, uh, not being able to drink as much and bounce back, but still loving like, you know, the feelings that alcohol give you in that moment, but not after <laughs> And it's not really like a functional product, but cannabis beverages can be. And so, um, you know, my fiance, he's not a, he doesn't, he's not a weed person, nor is he an alcohol person and he loves wonder. Okay. And um, I think so, that is the category that they potentially, that is the market that they can start. To yeah. Take, right. Um, but like you smoke weed, right? Like I love wonder too. Don't get me wrong. I think of the beverages, that's the best one out there. And I like Alexi a lot, like for sure. But like you smoke weed, right? So yeah. are you like reaching for a beverage instead of smoking? Um, I, you know, I think that if, especially if you're indoors, it is just more socially acceptable because regardless if it's alcohol or not, when I think about marketability of a product and product, um, product market fit, like everybody drinks multiple beverages a day, regardless of what kind of beverage it is. Right. So you don't have to train the consumer on how to use the product mm -hmm. because they already know how to just hold a can and drink it. So, um, there's, there's that part, but also I, I think that just the, the founding team is phenomenal and I've seen them execute, um, you know, they've become the number four beverage in California and one of the fastest growing beverage brands growing like 60% month over month. Um, and, and, you know, that's, it's, it's hard to do that in a category that not a lot of people believed in. But I think that uh, as cannabis becomes more mainstream social, like flour is really huge. A majority of the market, what, 50 plus percent is driven by pre-rolls and flour. And that's really driven by like the heavy consumer market. But everyone's trying to like attack the, you know, low tier 
or not low tier, um, lower consumption market, like the soccer moms and like, you know, not, not me. Cause I consume quite a bit of weed, <laughs> you know, those be the people who've never tried cannabis for their first time. And those that it just, the, the frequency of purchase is just really low. So, mm-hmm. you know, can open up that, that category for low dose beverages. And, um, but then you expand from there, right? It's like doses started off as a, a vape company that was targeting entry-level consumers, but they didn't graduate with their consumers. So they had some growing pains. Uh, Wonder now has a higher dose beverage and some interesting products in the pipeline that will give those heavy dose consumers a really high and strong high that they're looking for. And it's more bioavailable. So, you know, I think all these products are complementary. Like if you're, if you're a cannabis person, you love edibles, you love weed, you love beverages, you like to try new things. Um, but some people, you know, they're concentrates, they love dabs. And so, I mean, try for sure. You can get any stoner to try it for sure. Um, I think it's roughly 1% of the market today. Maybe you have more updated information than I do, but, um, how much can that grow? You know, how much of the weed industry is going to be beverage? Uh, that's a, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, the goal is for us to get 10% state by state, but the industry is beholden by supply chain infrastructure. So California, I would say, you know, Massachusetts has been surprisingly quick off the ground and so is Illinois. And then, you know, we see beverages mainly in bottles in Colorado and then starting to merge, merge and canning lines in Arizona. So, you know, the supply chain is built for flour and concentrates. So once we get there, then the operating costs will decrease, give those companies more, more margin to grow in other ways to market to their consumers rather than trying to just get by. But right now, you know, it's a, there's an evolution of how much you can grow in a category um, given supply chain restrictions or just like retail, you know, there's in California versus Massachusetts versus Illinois just so many more brands. Mm -hmm. So it takes a lot of money just to market your one brand. If you're like one of 1000 SKUs. Mm -hmm. Well, as you know, Ben Larson is a good friend of mine. And every time I have this conversation, even though (laughs) Artosa has transitioned into a lot of edibles and other things, if beverages blow up, there's going to be a few people that make a lot of money. So I'm excited for them, but um, let's shift gears a little bit. It says on your website, you're 100% minority and woman owned. Is that something that was intentional or you just kind of got there? Or why is that important to, to point out, I suppose? Well, you know, statistically, um, you know, 5.6% of VC funds, uh, not in cannabis, it's probably a lot smaller than that, are women led and only 2.1% are run by women of color. And so, you know, it's not the reason why people should invest in me, but it's the reason why you should get respect and play against the odds. And so I think that there are a lot of founders, a lot of service providers, a lot of people out there that really want to support um, the underdogs and minorities in the industry, because it is a lot harder to raise capital as a woman and also in cannabis and also being minority. It got like three X's against me. (laughs) 
And so I'm, I'm proud that the firm today, um, you know, hundred percent of the management companies owned by me. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, that's not to be confused with the fact that you don't only invest in women and minorities, correct? That's right. So I think there's been some misconception. You know, we've done some initiatives to support social equity operators by um, creating a handbook that is, uh, you know, investing in social equity operators 101. And some people would say, oh, you know, Journey One's a social equity fund. And, you know, although I would like to have some sort of that be part of initiative at one point, it's not. My point is to prove that I don't need a mandate in order to make diverse investments in the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about what does diversity mean to me, it's not just about the founders that we back. It's about the teams they build, the directors and senior managers that they hire. And it's also about the investors I bring in who will, you know, gain from the hard work of our (laughs) diverse founders. And it's the service providers that we choose to work with. So um, our general counselor is Hiller PC out of um, New York City, Lauren Rudick. I don't know if you know her, but she's she's incredible and just passionate and super smart. Um, and, uh, you know, she she's built a really diverse team uh, that's really fundamentally important to her and the clients that she brings on. Uh, we have uh, two sets of advisors at Journey One broken down into investment advisors and operating advisors. So investment advisors have background in the industry, whether it's M&A, growth investments. So I have Heather Malloy and Paige Checky, um, two women who were formerly on the M&A team at TerraSend. They worked on the um, apothecarium transactions um, and what have you. Now they're you know, doing their own thing. And then I have um, three operating advisors. Uh, so, so Rusty Willikin from Old Pal, uh, Anna Ray Grabstein, who was a former COO of NorCal Cannabis and CEO of Steep Hill Labs. And then uh, Annie Davis, who uh, was former VP of marketing at um, Flow Cannabis. And uh, every two, sorry, every six months, I bring on two VC fellows who are typically undergrads um, at universities. And I try to uh, recruit women and uh, people of color to help diversify the you know, new talent coming into cannabis, coming into cannabis capital and coming into venture. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fun because it, this is just the way it should be. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and it's the reason why I decided to build this firm because when I was going out into market, I, you know, I came from an operating background. I was an investment banking analyst. And so, you know, I had a few conversations with other cannabis funds and they're like, you know, we're looking for someone with investment banking background. And that just wasn't me. And, you know, everybody, everyone at their firm is quite homogenous. And so, you know, disadvantages on multiple levels, but I said to myself, you know, when I build my own firm, it's going to look different. Mm -hmm. And as something that's really important to you, how are we doing in cannabis in terms of, there's lots of equity initiatives, as you said. I think there is this narrative that it's better or somehow more equitable for minorities and women in cannabis versus other industries. Is that any truth to that? It's a different kind of hard 
to be totally honest, because in other traditional industries, um, early stage operators get access to traditional lending and banking options. And in cannabis, you know, primarily to get off the ground, you have to raise equity, which is very expensive for a founder to give up, you know, more, usually give up more money the earlier your company is. So we don't have like small business loans, um, which just creates disadvantages to, um, you know, underrepresented founders who don't have friends and family. Like I don't have, I have some friends who've invested in my deals. I have no one in my family that has invested in journey one or my deals. So when people say, Oh, you know, raise from friends and family first, that's like shows you that you have grit and like, well, that's a privilege to have that. Um, so I, I think that there's a ton of talent in cannabis. That's very diverse, but once you get to the senior level, C-suite capital side of the market, we're talking like, you know, not, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I sit with, uh, you know, majority of these folks and there's nothing wrong with them, but from a demographic perspective, it is very homogenous. So aside from the statistics, which are very stark and very obvious as who's involved and who's not, who owns and who doesn't, maybe we can put it that way. Um, how does that change? And if you use the true definition of diversity, should it change? Like, should we say, oh, we need to have a certain percentage of ownership that's minorities or someone that's impacted on the war on drugs? You know, are these equity programs, do they work? Do they make sense? Is that the right way to go about it? I think they all have good intent. I think in practice, it's been a struggle. Um, you know, New York has more of what you're talking about, which is like 50% of licensee holders. Uh, qualify as a social equity applicant, which, you know, changes from state to state. But the hard part is that like, you kind of have, you have to try a bunch, but it, it's, you have to look at an ecosystem from a 360 perspective. It's not about license distribution. It's about entire infrastructure for what makes a successful company, which is uh, capital as one of like the main pillars access to capital, continued growth capital, um, talent, uh, as well as market dynamics, you know, like in no cap versus limited cap markets, does it, it's more of like a, a license can be a million dollars versus $10 million. And for how long does that last? Um, and then it's also, you know, a question of what are the transfer rights on that license? You know, if, if we're trying to create generational wealth for social equity uh, licensee holders, but there are caps on when they can sell, are you handcuffing them from those opportunities? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, you kind of have to look at it from a state specific or city's municipality specific program. I think the intents out there and everybody, you know, is very supportive of these diverse, diversity initiatives, but it's pretty hard in practice. and. The people who are well-resourced, they're going to focus on continuing to grow and be more well-resourced. So the gap is just going to widen, which yeah. happens in other markets. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you said in practice, because I think at a general level, it's very easy to look at it and say, again, the stats are wrong. Are they too off balance? You know, they, they should be this or they should be that. But when you get in these rooms with these very smart people, 
are we supposed to say, well, you shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be here. You know, it's hard on an individual level to say, well, you know, you're not qualified or you shouldn't be here because you had too many resources. You know, I just don't know exactly in practice how it changes and how it changes as quickly as people would like it to change. I guess is the I, I see how yeah. it changes, just not in a timely manner because wealth doesn't transfer that quickly. You know, it is a generational thing. But, at, you know, at Journey One, it matters to us a lot. It's just not part of our investment thesis or strategy right. where um, by... Well, why you know, would you limit yourself? You know, that's just not smart, right? Like, well, I mean, the, the, the specific reason is that a social equity licensee is a licensed operator holder. Licensed operators are trading like, you know, heirs trading at like 1x this year's revenue. That's not a venture scale investment. So the way that it's designed is just not fit for what we do, but it doesn't mean that we don't support it and we're not working to figure out how can we support initiatives like that. For example, you know, I, I would love to work on a social equity um, syndicate where the returns are you know, modeled differently. The investors are, are maybe part of my LP Rolodex but, uh, you know, there's an impact lens to it because it is impact related investing. Um, so, you know, it's like back then when um, cannabis funds were only ancillary and then they did sidecar deals on plant touching deals mm -hmm. because their current investors were like, no, I don't want to touch that. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing. It's just, you know, different thesis, different opportunity upside, um, different set of investors. Mm -hmm. um Okay, so I think the big question everybody wants to know is uh, all the founders listening to this, like, are you still investing? Where is it with the fund? How much is deployed? Um, yeah, so uh, Journey One, we're targeting a $10 million raise. Um, we've closed about 12.5% of that and put um, that capital into five companies. Uh, right now, you know, it's a down market in the industry. So it's a investor and uh, it's a buyer's landscape. Um, so I'm using this opportunity to go back to fundraise because it's not like I, I don't think that you ever really need to fight for deal access in cannabis per se. Um, I don't, not, I don't believe in proprietary deal flow. I believe in knowing which deals to do and who to do them with mm -hmm. and making sure that the cap table is, um, positioned in a way for the company to really grow. And it's not just a bunch of like, you know, angels who might not follow on to the next round. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, uh, I do rolling closes, raise capital, deploy them into companies. And uh, we're structured as a 506C fund, so we can publicly solicit to LPs. Um, so any of the LPs listening, uh, you know, would love to connect with you. And you can go to my website, journey1.vc, if you'd like to invest. Mm -hmm. How much comes um, in the front door like that? I saw that on your website. How, like, have you gotten LPs that way, just from the front door? Uh, a few interested, but, you know, most of our LPs are high net worth individuals um, and then GPs and investors at other funds mm -hmm. that know how to look at deals, make decisions quick and want me to be their cannabis expert. Okay. So, you know, I, I, I teach founders how to do fundraising and I'm doing the same thing. I'm just raising money to put money in their companies, <laughs> which is kind of hilarious. Um, but that's, a st that's still like a heavy weight of who's investing in cannabis on the institutional level, which is primarily family offices. You're seeing a little bit of institutional 
firms. Like if you look at, you know, trees, a series C, they have long rich capital, which is like a growth tech investment, uh, sorry, growth tech, um, non-cannabis firm, and then Tiger and the Dutchie deal. Mm -hmm. Those are really small instances. And most of them, in my opinion, are looking for cannabis experts as anchors Mm -hmm. to give that domain expertise that they lack and provide some like, you know, we're confident this is, this is how it works. Mm-hmm. You know, investors trust other investors, right? Like we want to win together. To Whether they should or not, they do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cannabis is a collaborative capital industry because not, there's no one who has such a big fund where we can take down rounds and be the only one on the cap table. It's too hard to know everything. So you, you want to like, our strategy is to do hundred to hundred K to 250 K um, checks. And those typic, those aren't always like lead size checks. You know, if it's like a two, two, two mil round, someone's looking for like half a mil, maybe even a mil. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we get invited to deals all the time, which is awesome. Um, so our best deals come from other investors and, you know, that's because with our current portfolio and the other work that we do in the industry, founders like working with us and other investors, um, respect our, view point of view on the industry. So in terms of being the cannabis expert, you walked right into my next question. Uh, tell us about Bowen and the deal there. Uh, tell us what Bowen is to start with and then the yeah. deal put together. Yeah. Bowen. Um, so I recently announced that I have joined Bowen as a senior advisor and uh, we are a, a growth tech investment bank that's been around for 20 years based out of Boston. Um, Paul Bowen and Deb Bowen are both LPs in Journey One. Mm-hmm. And I actually met them um, through co-investing in a cannabis deal. And one of those founders introduced me to um, Paul and Deb when he heard I was fundraising. So we've known each other for a year now. And they were looking for someone to you know, scale out their cannabis practice. Um, their heritage is doing um, cloud and uh, customer experience um, kind of came out of the telecom boom and in banking, I guess, like middle market companies. And so I was like, you know, who I got, what contact do you want? <laughs> and they were like, you know, we think that you should do it. And I was like, well, you know, I, what does that look like? And so the alignment in terms of, um, them p- being part of, uh, journey one, uh, makes, you know, my other LPs feel confident that it's not just about, you know, Helene's time is not on Bowen, mm-hmm. but, um, I, I, um, help lead the cannabis practice and work on series B through D capital raise advisory. So helping founders figure out not, I mean, like when people think about capital raise, it's not just giving you a list of investors and making intros. And you know, this by doing intros, there's a lot of work into it, you know, and there's real value. Um, giving a warm intro with contacts and back channeling to close a deal is very different than, Hey, here's this person go have fun. And so I really think about what is the company, you know, what does our client look like today? What, where are the different ways in which they could grow? Um, and, uh, who would, who should be on the cap table to help, help them get there. Mm-hmm. And what are the terms that they should potentially go out to? Cause if you're, you know, if you're raising series B and you're really bullish right now and you're not taking investor feedback and you're like most founders are getting two thirds or half evaluations that they're getting. Um, 
if you keep on going out there, you're just going to waste nine months trying to get terms that don't exist. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's what I mean when I say capital raise advisory. And then we do buy side, sell side M&A. Um, so right now I'm really focused on the, the tech landscape. And there's quite a bit of consolidation happening in the industry. And I think the first signal was the Dutchy green bets, leaf logics roll up. And that's, you know, really good benchmark for the industry. Cause it makes people say, Oh my God, like if you invested in Dutchy at their seed round, I think it was like 2017, 2018, not very long ago. That was an 8 million post money seed. That's like a 420 something X return. That's crazy. That could have been my first deal. That would have been bonkers. Um, the, only, the only issue with what you're saying, and absolutely, and congratulations to Ross and, and everyone over there, it's not a weed company, right? Like we're talking about a software company. And even though their customers are all weed companies, like it's a software company. And that's why we've seen those outsized returns. And that's great. Um, but I think people lose sight of that, right? They're like the most valuable company, but like, I mean, he was making it, restaurant software before. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the most valuable company in cannabis. Um, I, I would say it's the North star for cannabis tech comps. I think more than that, but yeah. <laughs> um, cool. Well, congratulations on Bowen. That is a big deal. And every time you see someone sort of cross over, uh, it just shows you just a little bit of more legitimization of this industry. And that's very cool. Also cool that you are the conduit to that. Um, I don't know that we could have foreseen exactly what you're doing today when we met and started talking about it. Um, oh my God. No, I don't even remember that name, but odd conference that we went to in San Francisco at this hotel I've never been to. <laughs> Do you remember that? I cannot keep track. Of yeah, I just remember the high tops and looking around and being like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I thought at that point in time, I was like any conference I'm learning, I'm going, yeah. I'll yeah. get a media pass. Maybe we'll find a way I'll sneak yeah. in through a door. Like I remember going to my first MJ biz in 2018 or something like that. And like sneaking through the back doors. Cause I didn't have a pass because mm -hmm. I was just grinding <laughs> Okay, so and that's now, how, like that's one piece of advice <laughs> give someone else some other piece of advice that doesn't necessarily want to be a ceo and a founder because i never wanted to be that give <laughs> someone some advice how possibly can they break into this vc pe investment world yeah i mean i, I think looking back um if I could do the, if I could put a playbook together on how to raise a fund, um, I would, I would work on deal by deal. It's always great to work at another firm, but honestly, like the opportunities, like I have a friend who's booth grad worked at a couple different cannabis firms, like still no opportunities at existing firms. You know, we're not going to hire someone full-time till we get to um, to 5 million. So, and I'm not asking for people to apply yet, but you can do that if you want to put yourself in queue. Can I apply? So, Is that <laughs> yeah, if you want to, I have these fellowships every, every six, every six months. I don't know um, if I'm qualified though. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not the best employee, so maybe not, but yeah. <laughs> it's up to you. I take, I take, I look at everyone's application. Um, but 
Yeah. I mean, it's the same reason why I started journey one. There wasn't a lot of opportunities for me to walk into. So I kind of had to create it. Um, and it's been a crazy journey, very stressful, but very fulfilling. And so, um, I did my first syndicate SPV in 2019 in flower company. Um, and then, uh, did my, did my second one a full year later. I wish I did one every quarter, but it, you know, it's a lot, takes a lot longer. Everyone's like, yeah, we're going to close the SPV in two weeks. And I'm like, no, it takes like a month. Um, Minimum. Yeah. And, and the, the more deals you do, the more your investor base grows. Right. And the easier it is to sell a deal and raise money for that deal. Um, so I've, you know, I've done, um, I think my lowest raise is like a hundred K and the most is like half a million, but that first deal was painful. And it is be, you know, being a, an investor is fun at a firm is very different than running a, a SPV deal. Um, because you're actually raising money you're doing, you're doing the, so the things that are similar versus different, I'll break down, right? At a fund, you have a, you know, unless you're a partner, you have a very specific job, which is deal flow, deal management, diligence. Um, when you're doing SPV investment, it's deal flow, deal management, deal diligence, setting up back office, putting up your entities, um, getting a bank, closing investors, through a month long fundraise process and then managing that entity afterwards. Um, so the back office stuff is just really tedious and you know, you, you, you've done it. Um, so I have experienced a lot of great doing- help out there today. There's a lot of great softwares <laughs> and advisory firms if you can afford it, of course, you know um, yeah, there's a lot of good, I heard about a company called allocations recently. That's who I use. Use it. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. Do you like it? Is it awesome? Um, there's pros and cons. Like I think AngelList is a really great database. So I've actually um, created an AngelList syndicate too, uh, where I do non-cannabis deals. So I can help build my LP Rolodex mm-hmm. that way. So I'm doing a lot of experiments, but I use allocations for cannabis touching deals because they can support cannabis. It can support crypto and psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have you know a master series LLC where every time I do an SPV, it just lives underneath that. So it's easier for tax reasons. Makes it a lot easier. I'm blanking on the one that I used to use, much less tech. I mean, they made sure. Yeah, sure. There you go. They made you think it was a tech company, but it really wasn't. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, uh, that's he's a really nice guy. I won't shout him out, but I really liked him. Um, I think that is incredible, like just black blocking and tackling like tactical advice of how to do this um spvs are harder to do than a fund and i think a lot of people don't realize that and that's why it's such good training ground for someone that wants to go raise a fund because you have to do every part of it and like you said you have to do it in a condensed period of time which yeah, is yeah it's hard. it's like raising a baby fund every deal every time and you um, have to keep the company on the hook too like hey you know, I promise I'm going to give you this money. I promise it's coming, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, but don't, don't, don't be fooled of how much easier it is perceived to be because the success of an SPV is the ability for your Rolodex to write checks. Mm-hmm. So you have to, you know, people who have like big SPVs like Jason Calcanis, like he only spends up an SPV once he gets commits up to 250 K mm-hmm. because that 250 K gives um, a threshold for him to um, 
be able to stomach the, the fees to set up the SPV, mm-hmm. which are roughly around eight to 12 K. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to have volume in order to do deals frequently. And I want to get there. It's just a lot of work. So I, I, you know, I need to bring on someone who can help me with that part of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, you know, I've been doing that, the SPVs, I've converted some of the LPs over to, um, the LPs and the SPVs over to the LPs in the fund, but it's not a one-to-one conversion, right? Like <laughs> I'm asking, you know, institutional uh, check writers to do 250K um, and right now individuals to do 50K. Mm-hmm. And some people can't do that, but you have also more, more flexibility on um, deployment of your capital. Whereas an SPV, you're, if you're doing a 100K check, you're putting that up front. Through a fund investment, you can pay that over quarterly for two to three years, which gives a little bit of like cash flow flexibility. This conversation warms my heart because um, you didn't know any of this shit when we met, for sure. I don't think <laughs> you no. tell me. No, I'm not lying. I, uh, you know, it's it, and I'm still learning a ton about oh, um, fund management because you can do so much prep on portfolio construction. And then once you're in market, you're like, oh, well, this check is different than what I modeled out and the market conditions change. So um, I'm really lucky because I'm part of uh, a handful of women VC um, programs. Like I just came back from San Francisco and did a a pitch in front of institutional LPs Mm -hmm. and um, got a lot of praise for it in how I positioned cannabis because most of the institutionals Flat out, one of uh, a super well-respected LP fund of funds backing underrepresented uh, fund managers. I was like, "Hey, do you do you invest in cannabis?" And he flat out said, "No, I don't. We don't invest in sin." And I I couldn't even respond because I don't think I'd heard that before. And I was like, "Are you? You know, I don't know. Is your are your LPs um, like religious groups? Because that's the only thing that I could think of that would call it that." But I'm like. You know, the, the, the kids who use cannabis for epilepsy and uh, the people who use cannabis for Parkinson's, is that a sin? So there's so much perception on the institutional capital side. And it takes people like me to say, hey, you're looking at it wrong. Let me show you a different way to look at it. I always tell people, I always say plant. I don't say, I try to say plant a lot because it reframes like, you know, the word cannabis. Yep. And when I, when I look, when I tell them about the opportunities in here, I'm like, yeah, you can invest in B2B software. I'm talking about venture scale returns. Mm-hmm. Here are some benchmarks. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you got to make it easy for them. You got to hit them over the head with it, right? Um, I think that's a good place to wrap up. How can we help you? How can the audience help you? Obviously, deal flow, you need investors. Anything else? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm a fundraising and hustling at Journey One, and uh, a good part of our LP stack right now, 52% represent women and/or people of color, which is awesome. Um, and uh, some of them are, you know, GPs at traditional VC firms like Eric Lunis from WaveMaker Partners. They have about 700 million dollars in assets under management, and uh, one of the oldest VC funds in LA. Um, and uh, executives in the cannabis industry that are looking to get exposure. I always tell people all the time, some people are like, hey, you know, we just want to do direct deals. 
And I'm like, you know, the odds of success by doing an angel investment versus portfolio approach are way lower. So like Jason and do, you know. Yeah. If if you build it, if you, if you do angel investments, build a portfolio, don't do like one or three deals, you know, get, get like 15, you need to hit volume. Um, so that's why I always tell people, you know, if you're working in the industry and you've got some good upside, you want to put some capital work, like, let me be your portfolio manager on the private early stage side. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the Bowen side, you know, looking to help founders that are looking to, uh, to grow and potentially sell or roll up some companies. So um, my goal is to see the entire capital stack in cannabis and um, help some of the most iconic deals happen. Um, you're a long-term listener. Thank you for that. Who should I have on the show? Who would you like to see me interview? So, you know, there's a lot of really interesting new talent coming in to the C-suite. Um, when I talk about diversity, I always think about C-suite because found there's only like one, two founders. There could be a C-suite of like five or six. Um, Sandy, who is now the new CFO of Wanna Brands, and she was formerly um, at Parallel Brands. Um, she's fabulous. I just had lunch with her. Okay. And uh, she, let me see, Sandy, I think it's Sandy Lee. She's just a really inspiring uh, woman. I, and uh, she would be good to highlight. But well, I think I think some of those... Yeah, I'm happy to make an intro, but I think there's some of those, you know, everyone pays attention to founders. It's like, who are the right hand people of founders mm-hmm. that are, that are doing equally as much, mm-hmm. but more. aren't really talked about. Yeah. Um, I think that's well said. Well, congratulations on everything that you have done in a pretty short amount of time, by the way. Um, it makes me feel really good that I had the smallest part in your evolution um a consistent part i'm still tuning in man all right you got me you got me on the newsletter subscription (laughs) good stuff well aline it was fun thanks so much thanks brandon